0: Hey, stranger! Welcome, in the night. welcome back to Trashy Divorces.
1: shoo bee doo doo Welcome back, y'all. Hey, I'm Alicia. I am Stacy. This week, we're bringing our Trashy Divorces together under the song "Strangers in the Night," made famous by old Blue Eyes himself, Frank Sinatra, in 1966. Yep, it won him two Grammys
0: in '67. Although he hates the song and calls it a piece of shit. And the worst song that he's ever heard. But it was also his first number one hit in 11 years. So perhaps, shut it, Frank. Simmer down, Simmer down. For
1: real, right? What well, brings our two stories together this week? We are covering two nighttime soap opera diva stars. Stacey, you're bringing us the trashy divorce of...
0: Jane Wyman. Oh, and so uh, a little known political figure named Ronald Reagan.
1: It was a great story. Yeah. But you've got an even you've
0: you've got an expansive loving story of a cool person, goddess
1: and diva, four-time married, Diane Carroll, trailblazing, but unlucky in love. Yeah, so unlucky in love. Hey, before we kick it off, let's give some thanks and praise to our Patreon people. God, we had y'all. Yeah, so another big
0: list of new supporters, and we are so happy to welcome you.
1: Amazing, all the trashy love and thanks, Stacy. Kick us off, sure, Araneta. Dana, Dagmar
0: S, Kirsten L, Lorian L, Melissa M, Misha
1: H, Delaney, Jessica D, Michelle M, Gage, Shauna K, Bridget C, Monica L, Casey F, Lex, Tanya K, Ashley, Lauren H, Heather A, Holy Cats. Thank you so Y'all much. All are amazing. Welcome to Team Trash Candy. We also have a few more super supporters this week. We sure do. Y'all are amazing.
0: All right. Thank you so much to Antonia R., Amber W., Natalie H., and Jordan P.
1: Y'all, just huge love and just overwhelming piles and piles of trash candy to our Patreon people. Yeah,
0: we hope that you are enjoying the stuff we post over there as much as we enjoy making the stuff we post over there because we really, really do... So, Alicia, what did we do this week? Oh, my gosh.
1: We had an Ask Alicia About the Stars episode. Oh, a profile on Carmen Miranda. Trashy Tudors covered the executions of Henry VIII's Fifth Queen, Catherine Howard, and Jane Boleyn. Oh, hell. Our deep dive into Judith Campbell Exner took two episodes this week. That's how trashy it was. Yeah,
0: yep, yep. So when you have a need for more trash candy, that's where you find it.
1: Yeah, check us out. Patreon.com slash trashy divorces. We got you, boo. Yeah, let's take
0: some odds on um the cat's behaving for this recording session.
1: What are the chances that we'll be sharing love with our cats before <laughs> this episode is through? It's a good question. Shooby dooby-doo. <laughs> Let's go, 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 start the episode. <laughs> Cue music! shoo bee doo you have the trashy divorce of Jane and Ronnie Pooh. Oh yeah! Ha!
0: yeah. Hey Stacy. Hey Alicia. Yeah, Jane hey. and Ronnie Pooh. Let's do this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Jane Wyman, uh, Ronald Reagan. Reagan being our first divorced president because of this marriage. They this were, one's
1: been on the spreadsheet for a long time. I'm excited. They were that Hollywood you tackled hot this. stuff. Hollywood hot stuff.
0: Once upon a time. All right. We've touched on Reagan as an important figure in Frank Sinatra's later life, but these two had been kicking around Hollywood f- like since the 40s. They're very close in age, they're basically peers. So they've known each other for years when Reagan gets into politics in the 60s. And even though Sinatra was a lifelong Democrat at that point, he supported his Republican friends' gubernatorial reelection campaign in 70. 72 Sinatra endorses Nixon and he never looks back from his yeah. embrace of Republican politics yeah Ronald Reagan himself had not always been a Republican although somewhat quixotically his first wife Jane Wyman was a Republican really and their divorce happened in part because of their differing political views although it seems like there was the particular political milieu that they were jammed into was really wildly different than uh, what you might expect so interesting tell me more all right well i just want to point out that you know the next time somebody pines for the old days when politics didn't tear us apart it did it always has always has (laughs) always has always will there was more (laughs) happening with jane and ronnie but whatever all right so we're going to talk about jane wyman star of stage and screen and ronald reagan b-movie powerhouse who parlayed his faltering film career into leadership of the screen actors guild and then into the California governor's mansion and then into the white house it's quite a trajectory boom, 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 boom. it was kind of inter- this was an interesting read for me cuz i grew up in a strongly reagan loving household and i remember what 84 i would have been 8 i remember being so excited when he was reelected by such a massive margin in 84 it was, anyway Everyone is allowed to grimace with me at that recollection.
1: Back in the days when you were a Republican. When yeah, you, when you was were eight. eight. <laughs> <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, I grow a lot of things in life.
0: Okay. Ronald Reagan was born on February 6th, 1911. He's an Aquarius in the small town of Tampico, Illinois, which I've probably mispronounced there. Tampico, I don't know. His family moved around quite a bit when he was young, uh, but by the time he was 10 or so, they had settled into the slightly larger town of Dixon, Illinois, and he and his older brother did normal kid things. They went to school, they went to church, and as a teenager, Ronnie worked as a lifeguard. He rescued
1: 77
0: people during during his time as a lifeguard. Holy
1: cats! That is some...
0: Who in your town is teaching swimming lessons because they're failing? So... (laughs) I also was wondering if he might just be overreacting to everything. There we're oh. we're gonna come to this later on, but yes, yeah, seventy-seven rescues seems like a lot.
1: Like my mom lifeguarded in her summers growing up, like right late sixties, early seventies. All my uncles did too. I think between them, they maybe rescued two kids
0: out
1: of 12 summers of, you know, collectively lifeguarding at pools. Well,
0: Strapa Superman. How big is Dixon, Illinois? Speedo- it's not big. And it was not big then. <laughs>
1: Everyone went to the pool that day and, and drowned,
0: drowned. <laughs> in the town. <laughs> Tried to. Anyway, 77 rescues by that is remarkable, Superman Ronnie. Ronnie Reagan, who, again, I
1: just assume he was overreacting. The kid was seven, and he saved one kid, and now he's just bragging about it. I say, 77 people yeah. from the depths of the Dixon, Illinois pool. Yeah. Okay. Sorry.
0: <laughs> no, you're good. So he goes to college, Eureka College in Illinois, pretty indifferent student, but he was definitely into sports theater and politics, 1931, 32, He gets himself elected student body president. Sure he does. Sure he does. And he, again, nineteen 19- thirty. 31 or 2. He goes to war against the president of his college. There are demonstrations on campus. He is protesting with his fellow students. He is, like, in it. I know. This guy ended up being Ronald Reagan. Just think about that. Okay. He also was furiously pissed off by racism as a young man, ah, which is a little ironic given his later full- body embrace of Barry Goldwater, whose 1964 White House bid is generally viewed as the moment that African Americans left the GOP forever. Yeah, we'll have more on that on Patreon in the next couple of weeks. So you know, so-so student who certainly loves sort of public speaking type stuff, graduates and is like, "Hey, I'm Superman." He, is, he will save you if you are near water. So he thinks, like, wow, radio is going to be a good spot for me because I love public speaking things. Okay. So he ends up being the announcer for the Chicago Cubs baseball team. No for way! A the station Cubbies? Station huh. in Des Moines, Iowa. But this, like, he has to travel with the team to commentate for the radio station. So this is how he gets to California in 1937. There are terrible storms. So like the games and like his normal reporting duties are are fully interrupted. So he looks up an old friend from the Iowa radio station who went to Hollywood a few years before and things are going really well for her. She's singing at some big hotel, like A+. They have dinner and he tells her how desperately he would like to be in the movies. And she's like, oh. Well, you're not going to be able to wear your glasses. But let me call my friend, and so she calls an agent, who sits down with him. He shows up to the, uh, he shows up to the meeting with the agent without glasses, and his vision was apparently terrible. Oh no! So he can't see. Like he doesn't know what this guy
1: looks the like. The question is, how did he see the seventy-seven people drowning right. if his vision's that bad? Glasses, glasses are. So they're like, of course we can make you a movie star.
0: Yeah, yeah. The agent likes him. Like anyway, he ends up at Warner Brothers a couple days later. Screen tests, and then he's got to jump a train back to Des Moines because he's got to go commentate the Cubs baseball game. And they're like, I'm sorry, you're you're leaving, but it'll take us a little while to get through this. And he's like, I'm sorry, I have a job, and so he leaves. And a couple days later, he gets a telegram that Warner Brothers would like to hire him on a seven-year contract, 200 bucks a week. What? So, yeah, Ronnie Reagan heads back to California. To and become
1: is, an actor. He's is
0: immediately assigned to the B-Film unit, home of almost quality programming. <laughs> But he picks up his first starring role in 1937. Like this is how quick all of this happened. So you just had to get to California
1: and you could be a movie star. Mm-hmm. Okay, you could pretty cool, much cool. walk in off the streets and cool. If you were good looking, mm-hmm. you could Ish. say if words weren't too hard. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You looked okay. Yep. So Let's make that kid a star.
0: Ronnie would later joke that at the B unit, the producers quote didn't want them good; they wanted them Thursday. So it's basically... <laughs> Good,
1: fast, cheap, pick two. I, right.
0: I mean, we, I mean, I think today, like we joke about like porn stars are in 600 movies in six months or whatever. Ronald Reagan in less than 24 months was in 19 different films. What? Mm. One of those, 1938's Brother Rat, paired him with the actress Jane Wyman. And so for a minute, we're going to leave Ronnie Reagan at the Trashy Divorces Depot
1: cuz they're meeting in a movie
0: called Brother Rat. Brother Rat. There was a sequel too in 39.
1: <laughs> what was that? Sister uh-huh. Rat.
0: Sister of Brother Rat. I don't know. Oh my god. I forget. I I started to write it down and but this is where they met and fell in love.
1: Okay, I'm going to be real honest with you. Going into the story, I had super low expectations. Brother Rat. But I all of that was amazing. Okay, <laughs> tell me about Jane Wyman. This is great. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay. Jane Wyman was born Sarah Jane Mayfield on January 5th, 1917. She's Cap. Okay. Okay. She would be cagey about her age all her life. And this comes up just a lot. She's just cagey. She got her first radio gig at the age of 13. And so she had to lie about her age at that point in order to work. And then when she went to Hollywood, like she just was sort of consistently fudging numbers to fit... Whatever was needed of her. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool, cool, cool. At that time. So anyway, she was born in St. Joseph, Missouri, in 1917 to parents who were themselves in their early 20s, which obviously is pretty normal. But when she was four, her mother filed for divorce. Oh. And the next year, I don't think the divorce was ever finalized. I think her mother actually nursed her father through because he died suddenly. She's five. He's 27. Oh. Yeah, it's really, it's very, very sad. So after dad dies, mom leaves. She heads to Cleveland, Ohio to get a fresh start or something and leaves little oh, Sarah Oh, leaves, Jane. takes mm-hmm.
1: off without the baby.
0: Yeah, leaves her with foster parents. She was an only child, and so suddenly she is living with uh, a foster dad who's the chief of detectives for oh. St. Joseph. And so, you, yeah, here's the setup. You've got parents' marital strife, dad's death, mom's abandonment, and then a strict upbringing. The chief of detectives here kicks it not too long after. Like, her childhood is brutal. This like, is
1: traumatic. Mm-hmm. This is horrible.
0: Yeah. So this is a person who, like so many of our subjects, is definitely not set up for success when it comes to healthy relationships as an adult. All right. Nineteen thirty-two. The same year that Ronnie is graduating from college, Jane drops out of high school at the age of fifteen and heads to Hollywood. I mean, because they'll just make gonna you a lie star of, there. Going to lie about her age. Perfect. I mean, this is this is what happens. She got bit parts for a few years. She worked as a manicurist. She was a switchboard operator. I think she did some showgirl stuff or chorus line stuff. Getting by. Um, yeah. Nineteen thirty-six. Her luck turns around. Warner Brothers signs her to a contract for sixty dollars a week.
1: Wait a minute, yeah, same studio. Mm-hmm. She's making one third of the amount that he's Sa- making at two hundred bucks. Same B unit. Wow,
0: yeah, same B film unit. Yeah, so she gets right to work on their on their B movies. Sixty bucks a week. Mm. She had her sights set on being a comedic actress and singer and had no intention of ever taking on dramatic roles. She just, I think she just enjoyed being in comedies. Like, I think that was just Jane Wyman. My takeaway from this is she is someone who just always did the things that felt good for her to do and never budged on that. Like that's That's super commendable. Yeah. Okay. There you go. Just well, a,
1: welcomed and getting to know and love your Capricorn. Yeah, just
0: a super commendable sense of like, no, no, these are the things that bring me joy and these are the things I shall do, period. Uh, yep, yeah, that's a cap. All of that other stuff, don't care. <laughs> okay, so she is in dozens of like high energy comedy films and just delivers these great performances, but gradually, you know, she's in Hollywood. She... Gets some experience, sees how things work, sees what, like, lands in the market, and she kind of starts to want more for herself, more out
1: of her career. More than $60 a week when the males around you are getting paid three times as much? Just wait. Yeah. (sighs) Okay. So also worth noting, in 1933, Jane marries for the first
0: time. Hmm. To Ernest Eugene Wyman, she lists herself as 19... On the marriage certificate because she has always been cagey about her age. How old is she really? 16. Oh my god! And Eugene, as he was known, was eleven years older, age twenty-seven, when they married. This marriage Okay, again, there's a lot of caginess here. The details on her first two marriages are not. She was she just never opened up about them. No, she's pretty tight-lipped. She's super tight lipped. <laughs> So there's just a lot of I mean, we know when this guy's dad died because the studio put out a press release, but it said that it was her dad who had died. like it's very
1: interesting,
0: very strange. Anyway, so she and Eugene were married probably for two years, but there are some other accounts that say their relationship lasted just a month. So, OK, I don't know, but it was it was so short, not long term at, at all, not long term at all. By the time she hit the set for Brother Rat in 1938, (laughs) where she would meet hubby number three.
1: Unbelievable.
0: She had already divorced Eugene and was married to a New Orleans dress manufacturer named Myron Futterman. Uh Uh-uh. Sounds fun.
1: He's the life of the party.
0: Hey, is Futterman coming?
1: He probably is. No
0: one knows, because basically, like, if you're her ex-husband, except for Ronald Reagan... Like you, you, you disappear into the mists of time after she's done with you. It's Fudd brings the fun. Yeah, Fudderman, Fudderman's fashions for all your fashion needs. Unbelievable, Canal Street, New Orleans. Okay, so she's married when she meets old Ronnie Poo.
1: Mm-hmm. Strangers mm-hmm. in Brother Rat.
0: Ooh, Ronnie. So these two might have been the B unit, but they were A plus in the Sparks department. Yeah, I wrote that. You're
1: so corny. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, Dad.
0: Okay, so Jane's second divorce was granted (laughs) on December 5th, 1938. And Jane Wyman and Ronald Reagan were married on January 26th, 1940, just over a year later. Everything is coming up roses for both of them. Jane had been developing an interest in taking on meteor roles, and the following year Ron landed himself the role of a lifetime. In the movie King's Row, he played a double amputee in a performance that was very well received by audiences and critics. And apparently the catchphrase from that movie was, Where's the rest of me? Uh-uh. I'm going from memory there. No, that was like the name of his autobiography when he ran for governor. Like he put out a memoir. Like Classic, like, I got to publish a book because I'm going to run for office. And so, sure. yeah, so he used his catchphrase from his Hollywood days
1: Where's the rest of me? Where's the rest of me? Perfect. Okay. This story just keeps getting better and better.
0: Yeah. Okay. So, also in 1941, Ron and Jane had their first bebe, Maureen. They would adopt baby Michael in 1945. Apparently, the delivery, Maureen's delivery, was really. There were a lot of complications, and so they weren't sure that Jane could actually carry a baby to term in the future. So they adopted Michael in 1945, and then Jane does become pregnant later. Their third child, Christine, was born prematurely and only lived one day. Oh, that's tragic. It's really tragic, 1947. And this definitely contributed to the breakup of their marriage. It Um, often, yeah. Sadly, it often does. It's a
1: tough thing to endure.
0: Yeah, and I guess... Ronnie had pneumonia at the time, so, like, he was hospitalized elsewhere, and so Jane actually went through this alone. Like, he was Ah. not with her when she gave birth prematurely, and then their child died. Yeah. So, anyway, tough, right?
1: Yeah. Super tough.
0: So, sorry. That was all sort of moving forward in time, but sort of sets the stage. Okay, so Warner Brothers, the, the studio sees what's up with Ronnie's King's Row thing, and they're like the it couple. So they bump his salary to $3,000 a week. Uh, Uh-uh. They they do, yep. And the studio is presenting Ronnie and Jane as the picture-perfect Hollywood couple. Papers are routinely running studio-crafted stories and photographs about this idealized domestic bliss that they're living in.
1: Roses, I say roses coming the up days of wine and roses yeah what happens now
0: what do you think happens now in the early well, you 1940s said so mm-hmm.
1: ronnie's going to war
0: yeah sort of well Ooh. luckily he's got terrible eyesight right oh, i forgot
1: so but have you heard about his heroic superman life-saving skills i
0: mean square that circle people <laughs> i don't know okay so yeah world war ii interrupts Ronald Reagan's meteoric rise in Hollywood. Cause apparently after his big hit, like that would have been, that would have been viewed as his breakout role. And like, he would have gone on to
1: perform many more rescues or something. I, I sure. don't know. But wait, the army still takes him because he's blind.
0: Yeah. They send him, he, he's like, he shows up to uh, be inducted into the army in San Francisco in 1942 then they reassign him down to Culver City, California, which is LA. Right. The LA area. To make training films, basically. So he his unit was responsible <sighs> this is for a very hard assignment for the war. <sighs> I mean, as as it goes, but he makes four hundred training videos oh, wow. for the Air okay. Force, including training videos on how to pilot the B fifty twos that were used by the crews that dropped bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Like it so actually was
1: sort of a big deal. But he doesn't serve in a foreign land. He's not a gunslinger. No. I think for much of America,
0: California feels like a foreign land. I do not feel that way. I think California is awesome. But um no. Okay. So he, he
1: serves in an auxiliary capacity. Yes. okay.
0: He gets to keep his glasses on. He is not dodging mortar fire. Well, it would be hard to make the movies about. Plane flying if you can't
1: see what you're doing.
0: Yeah. Okay, well, let me share this, though, because he really, like, he was not just goofing off during his, like, he was really into the fight against fascism. He was really, like, beating Nazis was something he took very seriously. Okay. He really, like, he took his... As should we all. uh, Yeah, he took his part in the war effort very seriously, and he actually reviewed, as footage came in from the liberation of, of camps in Europe... He was the one who reviewed those. He was very moved. He made his kids watch those when they were 14.
1: Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah.
0: So one thing, this is on his Wikipedia page. Um, he comes into possession of a reel of film of the liberation of Auschwitz, and he kept it. And this is like what he had his son's watch at 14. So so they would know. I, I don't know. But he did believe that one day like Holocaust denialism would become a thing because it's just too really? horrific to oh. uh to accept. So yeah, that's why he kept that video and made sure other people saw it. It took far less time for Holocaust denialism to start than he probably hoped. Anyway, while Ronald Reagan is in Culver City making training videos for the Air Force and I don't know, stealing government footage of Camp Liberation. <laughs> I mean, for good reason. I don't know, whatever. That was a thing. Okay. Jane was taking her career into the fast lane in Hollywood. So she's starring with Olivia de Havilland, Jimmy Durante, Jack Carson, Betty Grable. In 1945, Billy Wilder and Charles Brackett produced The Lost Weekend. Mm. This was her breakout performance. Which meant that her star was very much on the rise just as her husband was coming home from the war to find that his King's Row success from 42 didn't count for anything in Hollywood in the post-war environment. It's a whole new scene, man. And everyone is coming home. Yeah. People who had never been in Hollywood before they got shipped off to Paris are coming home. Like, yeah, different, different everything. So as his roles dried up, he decides that he's going to run for office with the Screen Actors Guild the union for actors he became the third vice president that year and then there was a change in bylaws the following year that basically took out the president and most of the board so he runs in a special election and is elected sag president in 1947 and was subsequently re-elected six times between 47 and 59 holy cats okay yeah Yeah. well all right well change in rules all right it's a good gig yeah i mean a He certainly did a lot with it. Let's put it that way. Uh, Not all good as we're about to see. Sadly, this was during the hysteria of the Red Scare, and Senator Joseph McCarthy, Republican of Wisconsin, was just destroying the country as much as he could possibly manage.
1: Talk about a brother rat. Yeah.
0: So as president of SAG, Ronnie, who he did have a deep personal hatred for communism of his own accord. I think this ties to the fact that his father had been Catholic. And growing up in the Midwest in you know, the 20s, basically, the Klan was a big factor yeah, in politics of the day. For sure. And the Klan is, to this day, I think, vociferously anti-Catholic. So his dad hated the Klan. And my guess is that Ronnie, in looking at the world, he saw communism in much the same terms as the Klan. Makes sense. That is my guess. So, you know, Ronnie's had a sag mccarthyism is in full flower the red scare is on and uh dude bro names names to the fbi and to the house un american activities no. committee of people he thinks might be communists or communist sympathizers and is sort of supportive of the blacklist like oh yeah yeah oh, he all right yeah he and jane both uh i think this was part of their i don't i don't think she was it sounds like he was not a hundred percent comfortable with all of this, but his goal i think I think he bought into McCarthy's hysteria and I think he saw himself as saving Hollywood from a from a an impending government crackdown because of all the communists that I think largely he was imagining anyway, so he was gonna.
1: Be- he really does have a hero fixation doesn't he mm-hmm. yeah yeah he okay. was gonna rescue hollywood from communism from communism single-handedly from soviet expansionism like he rescued the dixon illinois pool 77 rescues come on let's do this most of those kids weren't even drowning <laughs> that is some yeah
0: he okay. had a he had a code name from the fbi he was a he was oh, an informant really? for the fbi in the 40s fantastic his code name was T10. I... And this didn't come out until the mid-80s. He'd been president for several years when this came out. Wow. Yeah, he uh these small government guys, you really got to you got to watch them cuz in private that's not what they think at all. <laughs> I mean, you look at their private behavior, they're not small government types no. at all. Okay. So, Ronald Reagan had a quirk that I can't really speak to the truth of. So basically, He is this powerful union guy in Hollywood, which inevitably gets him into high profile scrapes with other powerful union guys in Hollywood. And the way that his biographers put it and like people who are reporting on this kind of put it is that like, quote, Reagan suspected so-and-so was a communist or a communist sympathizer or whatever. Like Reagan suspected his mortal enemy in this dispute was a communist. Mm. All it takes is a whisper. Yeah. So then, when there would be a high-profile dust-up and people were saying mean things about Ronnie Reagan, who, you know, opposed a labor action or something, Ronnie Reagan convinces himself that, oh, so this is, this is what the communists do. They say mean things about you in public. Like, he, he really, he just thought he was, like, a victim of communist infiltration in Hollywood, so he recalled a mid-1940s strike that did turn violent. I mean, like, I'm not saying everything was awesome and whatever. Like, this this strike clearly got out of control. And he later said, quote, Now I knew from firsthand experience how communists used lies, deceit, and violence to advance the cause of Soviet expansionism.
1: I, <sighs> My word. So one other interesting quirk is that the American... I actually thought you were going to tell me about a kinky sex quirk. So this went somewhere very different. Hmm, Yeah. So that strike
0: that Ronald Reagan opposed that showed him the true face of communism? Right. Okay. The American Communist Party also opposed that strike. (laughs) And the mortal enemy who led it, who... I mean, there were whispers that he was a communist sympathizer, but I guess like in a later hearing either with HUAC or California's version of HUAC. Okay. Just started laughing and was like, I'm not a communist, but I do love to spend their money. Ah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know, Ronald Reagan. Maybe there are communists under every every bed and behind every door. Maybe.
1: Have you seen the Americans? <laughs> Come on. They're Come next on. door.
0: Come on. Okay. When Ron is finally out of the service in December '45. He's there just in time for, again, like his once kind of lightweight chorus girl, snappy sidekick role-playing wife to nab her first Best Actress nomination from the Academy. Oh, my. She was nominated in '46 for The Yearling, but it was in 1948 that she finally took an Oscar home. That year, Jane Wyman portrayed a deaf-mute woman who is raped and becomes pregnant in the film Johnny Belinda. This is subject matter that had been censored by the government... Uh, and so, this movie is the first that w- that was able to explore this type of story. Right. So it was a big deal. It was very controversial, and Jane worked her ass off to bring this role to life. She spent six months studying sign language at a school for the deaf. She memorized all of her co stars' lines so that when she was acting, she actually had wax in her ears to, like, more embody the, the deaf any... experience. Oh. Yeah. So. Uh, and she had zero speaking lines in the film. And, and won an Academy
1: Award? hmm Holy um, cow. Ca- no. Yeah.
0: Best Actress. Uh, when she accepted her Oscar, she held fast to what had gotten her there in the first place. Her speech was simple. I accept You're this. Lying about my age? <laughs> <laughs> I'm 11. No, she said, I accept this very gratefully for keeping my mouth shut once. I think I'll do it again. And then she walked off stage. Oh, I, Jane Wyman's kind of a badass. <laughs> She's kind of a man. badass. All right. There were also rumors, which Ronnie fully believed that she had an affair with uh, one of her co-stars, Lou Ayers, on the film. But Ronnie seemed to be really forgiving of it, telling gossip columnist Luella Parsons, right now, Jane needs very much to have a fling, and I intend to let her have it. I do not know quite what to say about Ronald that. Reagan! Don't really know. I feel like there's some context missing from that quote, because this would have been from six decades he ago, or whatever. Bling it, honey! Okay, so apparently he just could not conceptualize divorcing. Like, that just wasn't a thing he could do. So he went to extraordinary lengths to leave the door open to reconciliation, but eventually, it did not happen. So... You know, I think there's professional jealousy because of Jane's sudden massive success. Ron has been sidelined as an actor. There's grief after the loss of their baby daughter. And then there is this, like, difficult moral situation where, you know, Ronnie is siding with the McCarthyite blacklist and chasing communist sympathizers for the FBI. And I think the marriage just became unsustainable for Jane. They were just in different places. Uh, he would later write... Yeah, and you want to talk about that hero fixation he's got? He would later write, quote, Perhaps I should have let someone else save the world and saved my own home.
1: Uh, uh, I, I got nothing to say uh, to you.
0: Okay. Ronnie Reagan.
1: Ronnie Pooh. Okay. I
0: will say this blacklist thing that he was engaged in, it did work out for him later, as we will see in an interesting way. By 1947, Jane had had enough of the marriage she was in new york probably on a on a work trip and she told a reporter we're finished it's all my fault which was the first ronnie heard that his marriage was ending oh no very hurtful very very hurtful his friends blamed jane's increasingly devoted interest in being a star and suggested that she just got bored with ronnie Meanwhile, Ronnie told Hedda Hopper, quote, if this thing comes to a divorce, I think I'll name Johnny Belinda as a co-respondent.
1: Oh, my.
0: So clearly that Oscar didn't help her family life. The things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Long story short, they tried to work it out a few times, but in the end, Jane filed for divorce. And on July 16, 1949, the pair were officially done. The settlement, which was uncontested, gave Jane custody of the kids, $500 a month in child support, alimony only in case she became unable to work, and half of the proceeds from selling their home. Jane continued working in film and television into the 60s, at which point she just felt like the roles that were available for women were less compelling than they had been. So in 1962, she semi-retired to focus on painting. She became a respected landscape painter, Really, yeah, um, she did still work though, but at a much like she would in the sixties, she did a few things that Bop decade, in yeah, it in, was interesting in the seventies, she did a like a few more things that decade, but still, yeah, like if it didn't call to her, she just didn't respect Jane Wyman, yeah, and yeah, I guess the Dominic Dunn piece that you sent me, like she had she lived in an apartment, she did not have servants. She didn't have a staff at her home. like Just, just living her best right. life.
1: Loving herself.
0: Yep. Being her own valentine. Yep. <laughs> okay. So in 1981, not long after her ex-husband was inaugurated as president, she was cast as the scheming matriarch on the nighttime soap opera, Falcon Crest.
1: Yeah, she was.
0: Which ran for nine seasons. So actually, she was on TV into... The post presidency of her ex husband. Interesting. Yeah. The producers swore that it, that her being cast had nothing to do with Ronald. Not Gra- a thing. Yeah. That nope. Obviously, obviously, it was genius casting. Let's just be real. for sure. Like not only is she a great actress, but the people are curious, right? Like, you, you can't, anyway. First divorced president. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. She married two more times to the same man, interestingly. -uh. Band leader Bandleader Frederick Carger, but she also divorced him twice. Marilyn Monroe had previously hoped to marry Carger back when he was her vocal coach. Holy hell. In the late 40s. Fun fact. She bought, Marilyn Monroe bought uh, Frederick Carger a $500 watch as a gift on an installment plan. Like, I guess she didn't have 500 bucks that day. But she finds a watch she loves. She's in love with this guy. She's hoping to marry him. Brings him the watch. Everything's cool. He eventually turns her down romantically so they don't see each other. Anyway, when this dude walks down the aisle with Jane Wyman in 1952, Marilyn Monroe is still paying off that watch. No. (sighs)
1: Tough. Tough stuff. Okay. That is some high-level trash candy, Stacey. So
0: they divorced in 55. They remarried in 61. And they divorced again in 65. Unreal. This was Jane Wyman's last marriage and divorce. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> she never married again. She said that some women aren't the permanent marriage kind, and she just has no real talent for it. So there you go. Yeah. Got got canvases to paint. So Jane Wyman died on September 10th, 2007 at the age of 90. Wow. She is buried at Forest Lawn Mortuary and Memorial Park in Cathedral City, California. I include that for our listener who will be in Los Angeles soon. Oh, there you go. Mm-hmm. After the divorce, Ronnie did the normal flipping out thing. He got an apartment for himself and became a temporary Don Juan of Hollywood. He was running up huge <laughs> nightclub tabs. He had a different lady every night, etc., etc. Toward the end of 1949, and this is where this blacklist thing really pays off for him, there's a young actress whose name has appeared on the blacklist, but she is not a communist sympathizer. So she approaches him as the head of SAG... And is like, hey.
1: Can you help me out? My name is
0: Nancy Davis. My name is
1: Nancy Davis.
0: And it turns out that for some reason the government thinks I'm a communist. I'm sure you don't know anything about that. But I was wondering if you could help me get my name off that
1: list. She sounds a lot like Barnaby our Kitten. (laughs) Is she batting her eyelashes too when she says this? Okay, Probably.
0: Okay. So yeah, it turns out, well, according to Ronald Reagan, there were two Nancy Davises in Hollywood, which makes sense. I'm skeptical that either one of them was a communist, though, at this point. Like, I really just do feel like these people were infected with brainworms back then. So anyway, they start dating. And apparently it took, you know, Ronnie was pretty scarred from the divorce. Sure. He was not eager to rush into another marriage. He was still dating pretty widely for the first little bit of their dating life. And anyway, he did eventually come to the realization that this was a relationship that was working and could work he was into it so they were married in 1952 and their first child patty was born seven months and change later oh ron reagan was born in 1958 nancy reagan never ever developed warm feelings for jane wyman and the spite was <laughs> was mutual uh jane who like for real she never trash talked her ex-husband or any of her ex-husbands really like Never did, but she is rumored to have kind of in private referred to Nancy Reagan as Nancy Vita.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. And then reporters say that sometimes, like, you could get Ronald Reagan to, when he was president, to sort of start telling funny stories about the Jane Wyman years. But, you know, like Nancy would walk into the oh, room he would and shut just, up. he would just, mm-hmm. on a dime, he would just like freeze mid sentence and change topics. Nancy did not like Jane, and I don't think Jane liked Nancy. Okay. So Reagan's own democratic politics shifted as he began to see communists everywhere. Okay. And by the mid-50s, he was an anti-union, anti-communist Republican who favored free markets and limited government. Okay, In 61, he recorded an amazing bit of audio for the American Medical Association where he warned that Medicare would lead to a socialist dictatorship and snuff out American freedom. Well why didn't we listen to Ronald Reagan? For real. Um, you know, I know that we have a number of listeners who are, you know, in the age group, how you how you like in your socialist dictatorship now that you're in your 60s listeners like I don't understand. Anyway, let's say that Ronnie was a little paranoid and excitable from this point forward.
1: Wow. <laughs>
0: For Goldwater's sixty-four election, Mm-mm. he he made a super dark televised late October campaign speech called A Time for Choosing, where he said that only Goldwater would preserve the freedom that liberals were trying to take away. Goldwater lost, but this really cemented Reagan as a as a political speaker. And the clarity of his like us versus all those other Americans ideology is super simple. And so if you're trying to get the simple people to vote for you, it's a pretty good... It's still working today. Let's just say that. Anyway, so Ronnie serves two terms as governor of California. And then in 1980, he defeated incumbent President Jimmy Carter to become the 40th president of the United States. So we're not going to even try to dig into the complicated legacy of Ronald Reagan. There will be i i drew from some books we'll have those in show notes if you want to get up to date on sum it up he's the gipper helix jelly beans it's i mean yeah no for me like one of the formative moments of the world is when his press secretary laughed about americans dying of aids that was cool good times complicated legacy okay By all accounts, he and Nancy were deeply in love with each other, even through their later years. They really were. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In 94, uh, he left office in 89 after his two terms. In 94, Reagan was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, which, like, to be honest, it it did track with countless accounts from throughout his presidency of, of stuff that indicated early dementia. He died on June 4th, 2004 at home in Bel Air, California. Nancy would go on to live another 12 years, dying of congestive heart failure at the age of 94 in March of 2016. President Obama issued a proclamation ordering the flag to be flown at half-staff until her burial on March 11th. And then just a little little fun tidbit, because apparently young Reagan was, as he made his political conversion, was a bit of a mansplainer. I find this so hard to believe. So Jane Wyman once said of of her husband and then ex husband, "Ask him the time, and he'll tell you how to build a watch."
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, which also tracks with stuff um, his his peers had to say about him at that
1: time. That's amazing.
0: Yeah. So uh, I I feel like so Jane Wyman had five divorces in total, and that seems like a good number of trash cans to administer like all of these people had weird relationships with their kids like i don't know they were hollywood people
1: and then political classic people hollywood and- divorce mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. okay yeah 77 trash cans <laughs> filled go. with Water, drowning people from Dixon, Illinois and communists too. Filled with stolen films. Young kids from Dixon, Illinois who were not drowning. And bifocals. When Ronnie Reagan dragged them out of the lake or whatever. Five stars is great. That was a hella story. That was amazing. <laughs> I had I didn't know. I didn't know about any of that. No, I didn't that either. That was a great story. Well done.
0: All right. Well, let's take a break and come back with yet more rat packy spider webby awesomeness. That's so good. Cool. The
1: story of an actual goddess to go with the story of my political deity? A trailblazing goddess. Ah. Diane Carroll. Ah Diva Extraordinaire. And sheer elegance. Like in everything I have watched her in old, young interviews, it doesn't matter. She is always elegant. Like on fleek. I don't even know if that's the right thing to say, but she is, <laughs> God, turn up. I. She's amazing. Okay. Amazing. Her accomplishments are so many. She is the first black actress to have her own television series. This is called Julia on NBC in 1968. She's the first black actress to replace a white actress on Broadway. She replaces Elizabeth Ashley in Agnes of God. First black actress to star on a nighttime soap. When she starred on Dynasty. Oh, interesting. In her role of Dominique Devereux. Hmm. She's award, like, multiple nominated, award winning. She's won a Tony. She's won a Golden Globe. She's amazing. Elegant in every motion and word. Married four times. The thing that Diane Carroll is not... <laughs> She's not terribly lucky in love. Not easy to pin down
0: romantically?
1: Not at all. She is going to tell Los Angeles Times Leonard Feather in her early relationships that she was too young, married to her work, and quite selfish about it. Even in her first autobiography, Diane, she will confess, all I ever wanted to do was sing, what happened was more. You ready to talk about it? I'm, Such a good story. Yeah, yeah. Diane Johnson... Is born July 17th, 1935. She is a cancer. She's one of our cuddly crab babies. Like, cancers just want so, so much love, but they will pinch your face off? It's a tough dichotomy, Mm -hmm. being a cancer. Mm -hmm. Diane grows up in New York City, or she will. Here's the thing. When she's like three or four, she and her mom go down to visit mom's people in North Carolina. They have dinner. They put Diane to bed. Diane wakes up. No mom. No mom.
0: Similar, right? Like, wow,
1: that's a... She proceeds to look for a mom for days. Her mom just didn't say goodbye. Like, her parents have made the call that they need to be child-free for a year. Like, if they have a year without a kid, they can get their shit together. But leaving your child is going to make a lasting impression I on Diane Carroll. Yeah. Diane says, yeah, this makes a great story, like broken-hearted Baby. Much later in life, like, she'll say it happened. It's over. It's done. I could have lived on that excuse forever. But look at all the good they did. I had a fabulous, incredible life. It is my fault that I'm still walking around with this story in my head. It's been with me for a long time. It's hard to give up. It has worked so well. I thought that was so fitting because sometimes we do just hold on to that story. Right. It's an interesting point there. Mom and dad do claim the kid. Uh, they go back, live in New York. They're hard workers. Dad is a subway conductor. Mom is a nurse. Mom will eventually devote her time to caring for kids full time. But they really do the best they can for their kid. And Diane is super talented. So they're living in Harlem. They live at the, then the corner of Amsterdam and Broadway. And like theater is a thing. By six, Diane knows that she loves to sing. She loves to act. She's singing in her church in Harlem. She will head to LaGuardia High School uh-huh. of Music and Performing Arts. Yep. Where she is classmates with uh, Billy D. Williams. Mom and dad... Support this dream of hers. Like, they've always encouraged that, that her. Was, that
0: was the fame high school. Yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah.
1: We're going to make you pay in sweat. I love fame. Okay. Mom and dad support it. They, they've given her piano lessons her whole life. Like, they're into it. But dad is like, you can't go into showbiz life. Like, not because you're not talented. Not because you can't do it. But honey, like, this is a terrible life. It may be exciting, but can you weather this? Is yeah. your, you know, constitution enough to weather it?
0: And this was before you could leave reviews on <laughs>
1: the internet. <laughs> For real. <laughs> Diane's gonna get some modeling gigs. She sends some pictures into Ebony when she's like 14, 15. She gets the gig. It's a big deal. So she's modeling with Ebony magazine at 15. She I means she's beautiful. She's working in the hat department of Macy's. Like she's an ambitious kid in high school. She heads to audition for Arthur Godfrey. This is where she's going to change her last name from Johnson to Carol. She's with a friend whose last name is Oppenheim. So there's this whole like, you guys are a vaudeville act Oppenheim. And they're like, no, we're not. Anyway, she gets the call back and she goes back in with mom. And Arthur Godfrey gets a little fresh with mom. And Diane, even as a teenager, is like shutting that shit down. Like her thing is, you say it once, I'm going to correct you. And now you know who I am and I know who you are. And we're not going to go through this foolishness again. If Diane is not interested, she's going to shut you down. So like totes respect for that part. She's going to prove less skilled at shutting him down when she's interested, though. But Diane's going to go on a pretty fast trajectory. She attends college. She goes to NYU for a little bit. But modeling and singing and the lore of the showbiz life is too great. Here's what happens. She gets on this show called Chance of a Lifetime and wins. Wins a thousand bucks. Wins for the next four weeks. It's like a forerunner of, you've got talent, American Idol. Like Okay, okay so she's scraped up 3000 bucks from that. And that gig is going to get her a gig at a nightclub called the Latin Quarter, which will lead to a contract. So goodbye, New York University. But roles are not necessarily easy to come by. So you take the work where you can get it. She's doing some gigs in the Catskills. She's touring small towns, like trying to get her, her, her groove on. Mm. And that's the thing. Like she'll say, I didn't think I was a trailblazer. I was a black woman. I took the work that came to me. I couldn't be choosy. So Catskilling it, doing some tiny small towns. She's going to step up her act a bit when she goes back into New York City. So she comes back. Now she's wearing slinky gowns and singing torch songs. She heads out to Hollywood in 1954. Diana's going to get a supporting role in a film called Carmen Jones. She is the sassy sidekick friend Hmm. to Dorothy Dandridge, who has the starring role. During the filming of Carmen Jones, she meets Marlon Brando, who was just becoming he is going, like, in the process of becoming the phenomenon he's going to be. Diane says he was something new and dangerous and frightening and sensual. He was always about the craft. So Marlon Brando asks Diane Carroll to dinner. And at the end, like, they're leaving. And he, uh, whacks her on the butt and finds out that she's a proper lady when she whacks him back on the jaw. Wow. And says, I beg your pardon. Wow. This is a line that she will continue to assert certain Hollywood. The next day, a box of books arrive at her home. They're from Marlon Brando. They're about acting and singing and training and Stanislavski. And Marlon Brando's put in a note. He's like, catch the next plane and go to New York and take these with you. Go do it. And she does. She heads back to New York. She is going to get the ingenue role in a play called House of Flowers on Broadway. This is 1956. And here she's going to meet hubby number one, the casting director for said Hmm. play, Monty Kay. Monty is a Virgo, and really a cancer could do worse than a Virgo, but old Monty Kay is 34, Diane's 20. Monique has been a talent scout. He's director for a lot of musical acts and clubs in New York City. He will found a jazz club called Birdland in New York. He'll form one in, he'll found one in Chicago as well. He's producing a lot of famous musicians. Monique is a big deal. And Diane, young, beautiful, like a lot of good girls, maybe tired mega, of waiting. Sure. Mega talented. Maybe and CZ can mm-hmm. help her career. I Mm -hmm. These two lovebirds are going to marry September, 1956. Okay. Diane's dad is furious. Do not approve. Do not recommend. He will not attend the wedding. Wow. Doesn't go. And this is at their church in Harlem. He. Nope.
0: Okay. Sorry. You ditched your kid for a year in North Carolina without saying goodbye. And now you're not going to her wedding. Come on, dad, dad,
1: dad's not into it, (laughs) but like things go well enough. Like Diane is going to play in Las Vegas. Nat King Cole is going to come to her shows and give her notes, like Jerry Lewis did to mm-hmm. Sammy Davis Jr. She's going to meet Frank Sinatra too. He's going to be kind to her and help, like her build, like help her build her career. Everything's greedy until nineteen fifty nine. Diane is going to star in a little film called Porgy and Bess, really, mm-hmm. with dude named Sidney Poitier, really, and Dorothy Dandridge again. Oh. And nice guy named Sammy Davis Jr. So Diane Carol, and Sammy have known each other for a long time. They went on one date many moons ago. It was not a love affair. But Diane says, like, Sammy became curious about what I wanted to do. He was really helpful to me. He took me to a few screenings. He introduced me to Frank Sinatra. We had a friendship. And he was a man who was very strange with women. Um, <laughs> is what she says. He liked her anyway. Sammy Davis Jr. calls her a professional virgin.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: And she really liked that yeah. reputation. Uh, She's like, he partied every night. He was bigger than life. He was funny and smart and curious and loving and self-destructive. But Diane Carroll and Sammy Davis Jr. will circle around each other in their careers. They're on Broadway at the same time, but in different shows. They're in Vegas together. He's headlining in the Copa room. She's playing the Persian room. Gotcha. They're also in Porgy and Bess together. Okay. So in Porgy and Bess, Diane Carroll is going to meet and fall in love and start a very long and torrid love affair with Sidney Poitier. A very long, Mm -hmm, uh, right? Ten years. Okay. Which is tricky, you know, when Diane's already married. Oh, but so is Sydney. Even better. To a woman named Juanita Hardy. Hmm. Sydney and Juanita have been married about a decade now. Okay. Sydney Poitier is an Aquarius Pisces cusp. Just dropping that. And they're going to begin their hot and heavy long term love affair. Diane will have a daughter in 1960. It is said to work on the marriage with her husband. Diane and Sydney are going to star again. With another lovey-dovey couple together in 1961 in a film called Paris Blues with Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward. (laughs) Okay. So here's where it gets sticky. Diane in her next autobiography claims that Sidney Poitier persuaded her to leave Monty K. Okay. Okay. Sidney Poitier says, yep, I'm going to leave Juanita too. Diane gets her divorce does. Yeah. Okay. Monty's out in 1962.
0: And so how long until Sydney and Juanita got divorced? Uh,
1: Not until a lot of years after. So Sydney doesn't keep up his end of the bargain. One of those. So Diane's like, piss off. You don't want me. I'm nobody's second choice. I'm going to go date this other guy. This is her quoting from her book. Sydney called me at the hotel you bitch, whore, tramp. He yelled. Oh my God. I know he just left your bed. I won't have you running around with other men. You belong to me. Not cool. Not cool. She writes in her book that Poitier later told her he'd left his wife. He buys Carol a ring. He is like, Hey, Diane, I've just bought this 10 room Riverside drive apartment. Why don't you decorate it for us? It's going to happen. It's going to happen. We're going to get, we're engaged.
0: I feel like Olivia Pope went through a lot of this with Vermont. So much scandal.
1: I was only home a few days when he called to say his wife was having second thoughts. Our wedding plans would have to be postponed. When the apartment was ready and I was about to move in with my daughter and me, Sidney told me he didn't want her there. He changed the locks so I couldn't get in. Then he made me write him a check to offset his purchase and decorating costs. I did, as I was told, submissive and desperate.
0: I'm not sure what to say about all of that.
1: So Sydney is like, let's live together for six months and see how this all goes down. Which is a great idea unless you have a dependent child. And Diane Carroll, who was left all those years ago, is not going to leave her kid. mm -mm. Like, sorry, no.
0: Knows what that trauma feels like, isn't going to inflict that Mm -mm. on her
1: kid. Carol, this is later, and Poitier does not make a comment on this latest biography. They're friends. She says, Sydney and I are now friends. That's a lovely thing that comes as you age. Forgiveness and perhaps a relaxing of standards. I don't know if I'd be that forgiving. Sidney Poitier is eventually going to divorce Juanita. That won't be until like 1965, and it's not going to be to marry Diane. Even though they're going to carry on their game for a few more years, they dalliance about until about 1968. At that point, Diane's had enough. And in this same year, 1968, she's going to become a TV star in this series called Julia. Diane Carroll is the first black starring character who is not a maid. In this TV series, she plays a widowed nurse. And it's revolutionary. Like NBC is, this is groundbreaking television in the day. That role is also going to change her image. Right. She's not the sultry singer anymore. Now she's a caretaker. She's a nurse. She's a. It runs for three years. It runs until 1971, but she asked to be done with it. She's like, I'm exhausted. The daily grind of TV is too much. My image is changing too much when I go on the road to sing. Like and maybe she's evolving a little too, but. Let's talk about a little bit more love gone wrong. OK, so Sydney's out. She's had some success in TV, groundbreaking role. Wins a Golden Globe? It's nominated for uh, Emmys. It's great. But she's out with TV, and it might be time to fall in love again. So, Diana's going to date and get engaged to this dude named David Frost in November 1972. He's a Brit. That's a turbulent relationship, too. By February the following year, that engagement is done. But love is never going to keep a cuddly crab down. A week later, Diane is going to marry husband number two, Freddie Gloosman.
0: Did you say a week?
1: A week. hmm Okay. Okay. So Diane was seeing Freddie when she was also seeing David Frost. So it's all cool. This marriage to Freddie Gloosman is super fast. They're divorced a few months later. Is this, is
0: this the David Frost who interviewed Richard Nixon? Yeah. Okay, you...
1: Yeah, sorry. I, Might yeah. want to. Famous journalist, David yeah, Frost. Yeah, the David yeah. Frost who
0: interviewed Richard Nixon after his, yeah, okay. That David Frost. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, that's a catch. Well, she dumped him. <laughs> sure. To marry Fred Gloosman. And that's done in a few months. Fascinating. She says it was a silly marriage and a silly divorce. So what is Diane going to do? We learned it in the very beginning of the story. My career is too important to me. She gets back to work. So the great way to avoid the train wreck that that last marriage was, (laughs) Diane is going to star in this movie called Claudine with James Earl Jones. It's about the life of a woman in Harlem struggling to raise six kids. She'll be nominated for an Academy Award for this one. So Claudine comes out in 1974 with her Academy Award nod. Diane is being interviewed by Jet Magazine. And the managing editor of Jet Magazine at the time is this young kid. He's 24. His name is Robert DeLeon. He arranges Diane's 39. Robert assigns himself to the story so he can meet Diane Carroll and, well, love, yo. Or something like it. Three months after they meet, they get married. Okay? So they marry 1975. Jeez. And this is a little tricky because she's like... I'll retire and move to Chicago to be with you so you can do your job. And he's like, I'm going to quit my job so I can come to California and just support you doing your job. (laughs) Sadly, let's neither of us work. (laughs) Kind of sadly, two years later, Robert is going to die at the age of 26 in a really bad car accident. Oh my God. There is definite substance misuse in this one. Um, there are also some rumors skirting around that this actually might have been intentional mm. as well. So, I mean, it's a pretty tragic story. What does Diane do? She's going to go back to work. 1982. She goes on, she goes back to Broadway. She will replace Elizabeth Ashley and Agnes of God. The interesting thing about this, it's like black woman coming into like white character. They don't change one line of the script. Good. But her character. Dr. Livingston sm- is never leaves the stage. It is a grueling role. She's on stage the like She doesn't get to go in the wings and pee. But the thing that Dr. Livingston also does is smoke the entire time that she's acting on stage. And Diane is not a smoker. So after that six, seven month run on Broadway, Diane is done. She's like, I'm exhausted. I'm sick. I'm gonna stay home and recoup for a little while which she does and ends up watching a lot of television including nighttime television really and she gets hooked on this nighttime soap opera called dynasty sure
0: no the 80s it was there was a flood of them every network had mm-hmm. one and maybe two because there were Knots landing, landing falcon crest falcon dynasty in dallas
1: yeah all over okay yeah Diane says that Dynasty was ridiculous and entertaining sure. and it's a hoot and we all needed a hoot in the Reagan administration. So she goes to California for the Golden Globes and she finds out that Aaron Spelling, who is writing, producing Dynasty, is giving an after party for the Golden Globes. And Diane Carroll totally crashes it and makes herself into the first black actress starring in a nighttime soap in Dynasty with her role of Dominique Devereux. Hmm. Totally talks Aaron Spelling. She's like, you've broken like, every other barrier. Why aren't you doing this? right? And he's like, that's a really good question. I don't know why we're not doing that. And what's funny, he had a hard time writing. He's like, I don't know how to write for a black woman character. And Diane Carroll says, you write me like I'm a white man. Oh, interesting. That's how you write me. Like, there's no. So if you go and listen to her script, that is Aaron Spelling in his brain. You don't need to write for me any, like, don't make yourself crazy over it. You write for me like you would write for powerful white Mm -hmm. man. That's my character. That's really smart. All right. Okay, so 1984. She begins, remember band leader back in the day, Vic Damone. They tie the knot in Atlantic City in 1985. This is marriage number four. They tour together. A very happy Diane Carroll in a Los Angeles Times interview says, We're having a wonderful time off stage and on. Come to think of it, this is probably the only time I should have gotten married. Which maybe by 1990, she's rethinking <laughs> because it's going downhill. Mm. There's some rumors of some physical abuse, emotional, like it's. It's not good. By April 1991, they filed for formal separation. By April the following year, 1992, they've reunited. So it's an on and off and on and off. By 1996, the fourth and final marriage to Vic Damone, done. Diane Carroll is diagnosed with breast cancer in Mm. 1997. She does receive treatment. She survives a very aggressive cancer and will become an advocate for early detection and prevention. The cancer many years later will return. And at the age of 84, Diane Carroll will pass into the heavenly world in October of
0: 2019. Wow. Oh, I don't think I realized Mm -hmm. that she just passed in the last few months. Really?
1: So, on the TrashyDivorces.com site, you guys, I have put some classic footage. Uh, Diane Carroll with Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin singing witchcraft. Diane Carroll and Sammy Davis Jr. on stage together. I, it, some amazing stuff. But there's also a masterclass that Oprah Winfrey did with Diane Carroll. And this is one of the most poignant things I found in my research about her divorces, Diane Carroll says. Given the men I've been involved with, a very bad reputation. I'm not saying I said anything that wasn't true. They did act that way, but I selected poorly. I wasn't good at determining, is this a friendship or is this marriage? I wanted to be married. So when the opportunity was there, I did it. I didn't know how to live alone It was time for me to stop and answer these questions for myself. So after the marriage with Vic Damone falls apart, Diane goes back to LA and she learns how to live alone. She said, I had to learn about me, not the role I was playing. It is difficult because I am difficult. I'm not easy to live with. There are three or four choices that you can make that will give you a terrible day or a wonderful day but when you're alone you have no one else to blame but you for making those decisions like she didn't have the ability to lash out for her unhappiness anymore at anybody else because she's really mm-hmm. learning how to live by herself
0: focusing on herself
1: nobody can make you extremely happy but you she says i was an old lady before i understood that hmm. yeah so with that little bit of wisdom, I have a hard time with any trash cans. I think Sidney Poitier definitely gets a few.
0: That would, yeah, I mean, come on, they were both married. Like, yeah, I'm thinking there's some trash cans for that.
1: But for Diane, I mean, come on, the value of knowing yourself at whatever age in life you get there mm-hmm. is the good stuff. No one is ever going to make you happy in a relationship until you figure out how to make yourself happy. Three or four. Decisions, three or four choices can give you a terrible day or a fantastic day. That was so it's poignant true. to me. Mm-hmm. Like it is a remarkable feeling to be your own Valentine every day. So let's all do that. When you love yourself, every day is Valentine's Day. That's really nice. I'm just saying. Yeah. It's the, the work is worth it. Make yourself your own funny Valentine. Make yourself your most favorite Valentine. I mean, I adore you. I love you more than the world, but I really am my own favorite Valentine. I know that to be true. <laughs> but you do the work on yourself. Like, you stay single. You do the work. You get mm-hmm. to really love you. And once you love you, boom, then relationships become a very different thing yeah. and a little bit easier to navigate, I think.
0: No, I think so. I mean, choosing versus needing is its Abs- a really different thing.
1: It's a, the work is worth it. Yep. So uh, on that note, that's all I got. Those are the trashy divorces of Diane Carroll, trailblazing goddess diva of the world.
0: I so I vote that she gets some, she and Sydney Poitier get some uh, sixty zero trash cans back in the day, and then uh, we just leave her with some halos there at the end.
1: Perfect <laughs> mix of mix of both worlds. Yep. I love it. Perfect. Hey, friends, thanks everybody for tuning in. For sure. Yet again, we love y'all so much. You are truly the best listeners in the world of podcasting. Thank you for being awesome. Hey, until we're back with you next week with more trash candy or we see you on Patreon during this week.
0: We will be rabbit holing all week long. Oh,
1: yeah, for sure. It's a verb now. Until then,
0: keep it trashy. Hole. Oh, yeah, keep it trashy. <sighs>
1: so trashy
0: rabbit hole sounds kind of trashy
1: now that i keep saying it dynasty style trashy not slanting falcon crest style trashy. Ooh. trashy you just whack marlon brando across the jaw and say i beg your pardon trashy that's how trashy i want y'all to keep it this week okay we gotta go okay. <laughs> bye bye y'all thanks so much for listening big cheers and thanks to you for listening. Trashy Divorces is a Hemlock Creatives production created and produced right here in Atlanta, Georgia by us, Stacey and Alicia, with a little research and writing help from the brilliant Melissa O.
0: Our art is by Sydney V. Smith. That's Sydney V. Smith at carbonmade.com. And our music is used with permission of Ratsy. Check her out at Ratsy's store on Instagram.